Um, I'm honored to welcome the 2018 Holberg Laureate, Professor Cass Sunstein, to the Holberg Conversation. Welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, you are the Robert Walmsley University Professor at Harvard University, and you are also the founder and director of the program on behavioral economics and public policy at Harvard Law School. You have written a number of books, I think it's 48. Um, too many. Too many, <laughs> and several hundred scholarly articles and more columns and commentaries and op-eds than I could count. So it's, it's impressive and you have been awarded the Holberg Prize this year for, and I quote from the Holberg Committee, your wide-ranging, original, prolific, and highly influential research in law and related academic fields. Congratulations. Thank you. It is a great honor. It's an honor to uh, be here with you. And uh, a number of our viewers will know you, and, and at least some of your writings, and, and some will not be as familiar with them. Uh, but I think all of them will be curious about how do you get to be Cass Sunstein? Could you uh, tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you ended up uh, studying law in the first place? Well, I was uh, raised in uh, a smallish town in Massachusetts by a father who was a building contractor and a mother who was a, a school teacher. And uh, my mother loved reading. And uh, when I started reading comic books, like Spider-Man and Thor, the mighty Thor, and Fantastic Four, uh, instead of being unhappy and a little frightened of what was going to happen to her son, she thought reading was a very good idea. And uh, I found my way to law, I think, because in college the uh, uh, the curriculum had to be distributed. You had to do a bunch of different things. And I took a course that had uh, some law and some political philosophy in it, and I got hooked. Um, I think partly because law is so practical and uh, so much that we take for granted about ownership of property, our relationship with our employer, our relationship with our spouse if we have one, our, uh, our, the fact that we're safe, usually, that has to do with law, even if law is never triggered, and that law encodes judgments of various kinds, like about what's fair, uh, what's right, and also what's wrong. And once I got hooked in uh, a little like uh, an addiction in, in college, I thought, well, uh, to try to understand this a bit better would be a, a very good idea. I think to the extent that, you know, I maybe uh, uh, made some progress so far in understanding some legal issues. Uh, uh, it's connected with the fact that in high school my friends thought that I was a bit like a character called Boxer in George Orwell's book uh, Animal Farm, where if anything didn't go right, Boxer would respond, I will work harder. And so uh, they thought when I was 15, 16 years old that was, that was how I was, and I, I fear that that has continued. That, that's something you have continued doing, I think. Um, yeah. you, you mentioned the political philosophy. Is that, um, is that sort of one thing that triggered your, your um, closeness to the law, is the, 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 uh, the relationship between the state and the citizen, in a way? Uh, completely. So yeah. if you think about you know, your area, constitutional law, that if the issue involves freedom of speech or equal treatment or uh, religion, we are pretty automatically into philosophical issues, uh, even if we 
aren't thinking in you know technically philosophical terms. Uh, so if we think that free speech covers, let's say, um, uh, commercial advertising, uh, that might be because of an implicit philosophical view on individual autonomy and free markets. Or if we conclude that the free speech principle covers sexually explicit speech, there might be an idea about autonomy there. If we think that it's okay to regulate uh, uh, campaign financing so that rich people don't get to dominate uh, the speech market. Uh, it might be because we have an idea of political equality and we connect that with freedom of speech. And so philosophical issues, whether they come from, you know, Jürgen Habermas, uh, uh, I've been greatly influenced by a, a Holberg laureate or by um, uh, Jeremy Bentham, the great utilitarian thinker. Philosophical ideas often lie behind even daily legal judgments and often uh, can work a little bit like a knife in helping to clarify legal disputes that might otherwise seem pretty murky. And did this uh, sort of follow you when you then started law school? That the, the, I'm sure Boxer had to work hard mm -hmm. all, all the way through, mm -hmm. but was this sort of the, the, the part of the law that intrigued you? Uh, well, as I remember, uh, I got interested early on in administrative law. It was actually my second year of law school. And administrative law, at least in my country, is about the law that controls government. So if you have a government that's trying to do something about um, the environment or about uh, food safety or about uh, cigarette smoking or about um, health care, that's where the legal system meets the government in administrative law. And some of the administrative law questions are constitutional questions. Uh, some of them are not constitutional, but the Constitution looms in the background. And I got hooked on administrative law partly because it had issues about fairness and equality all over it, and partly because it seemed, and still does seem, to have, I think, a kind of freshness, and uh, even in the 20th century, and a 21st century quality, and certainly it does in the 21st century. And that area of law, because of its relative novelty, it's a little like, uh, uh, still feels administrative law like a teenager that's just trying to figure out what it wants to be when it grows up. That, uh, that seemed to me um, endlessly uh, interesting. This seems like something you've been continuing doing, wondering what to do when you grow up. Well, because when I, you went to, uh, out, out of law school and, and into uh, the University of Chicago, uh, that legal thinking blended with all sorts of, 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 of good thinking from, from the other people that you met there. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, so the University of Chicago, it's a unique institution in the sense that uh, everybody talks to everybody. So the law professors will talk to the economists and the law professors will engage with the psychologists and the law professors will talk to the scientists and it's a very um, uh, interactive community. And as I think about what defined the law school when I started, the University of Chicago Law School, and still is associated with it, it's that human beings are rational actors. And if people uh, get addicted to a drug or if they uh, do something that's gonna uh, make sure that they're gonna do great when they're older or if they do something that causes terrible economic uh, outcomes 
or if they get divorced in a really ugly way, they're rational. And that idea both has a great deal of power, the rational actor models, and uh, especially coming from, I think, comic books and literature, which I studied in college, it seems to have serious limitations also. And so the omnipresence at Chicago of rational actor models, and it may seem technical, but it's actually influenced governments all over the world, and it has some uh, force when we think about, you know, why did you do what you did yesterday? Uh, maybe a lot of it was you were thinking rationally, how do you have a good day? And uh, that will, if you're lucky, that will explain a lot of yesterday. But for most of us, um, we maybe didn't make fully rational choices yesterday. And engaging with the Chicago people on thinking about the law and what it assumes about human behavior, um, there was a kind of really productive tension for me. Because the law also relies on the rational actor in some ways in, in, in how we think about uh, criminal penalties and how we think about regulation. Completely. So there's an idea with criminal penalties, if you want to reduce misconduct, there are two things you can do. You can increase the, the penalty or you can increase the probability that people will be caught and punished. So let's say it's parking tickets, you can make it so that the, the penalty for illegal parking is really high, and then it might not matter so much how frequently it's enforced, because people will be scared and won't uh, park illegally. Or you can make it pretty low, fine, but you can make it very predictable. So you're definitely gonna get stuck. And then people won't park illegally. There's a famous paper suggesting there's a trade-off between probability and severity. Well, maybe not. Maybe if the likelihood of being caught is really low, people will park illegally uh, if the probability, even if the fine is high, if the probability is low, people will do the thing. And there's some evidence suggesting that's what people are actually like. And to figure out what's true, what are people actually like, it's both interesting in itself and it can help us make better legal choices. So you have this way of, of making these technical terms very uh, alive through these examples, I think. And, uh, and another uh, technical term that, uh, uh, that may uh, turn people off in the first place, but will not if you describe it to them. And why it is important is the uh, cost-benefit analysis. And you've written uh, extensively a number of books, uh, The Cost-Benefit State, Risk and Reason, The Loss of Fair, the beginning of 2000, about how cost-benefits analysis can discipline regulatory agencies. Right. So I'm acutely aware that when people think about what's inspiring in like life or from the government they like best, uh, cost-benefit analysis won't be the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, but let's see if we can uh, get a little uh, more uh, enthusiastic about the idea that is, is natural. So uh, if the question is, what should, let's say, uh, the government of Norway do about a problem. Uh, you might think, what are the values that we share and what's the best way of expressing those values? That's a tempting thought and it has some attraction. Uh, you might think, and this is not the most tempting thought I hope, uh, what do the interest groups say or what do they want? Or how can we get the interest groups to agree with each other so that we have uh, consensus among people who, let's say, are um, 
uh, often in disagreement. And uh, I worked with someone in a country not my own, not Norway, uh, where the public official was very pleased to say his uh, preferred approach to a hard policy problem was get everyone in the room and see what they can agree to. Uh, I think that's not the best idea. It's not the worst idea, but it's not the best idea. So the best idea is to think what are the human consequences going to be. So if we do something that makes the, the air cleaner or the highways safer, or if we do something that's uh, designed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions or to, to help uh, workers, let's say, in one or another way, uh, what are the human consequences? Let's not talk about what people can agree to. Let's not talk about uh, what our values are, at least not immediately. Let's get very concrete about what the human consequences are. So if you have something that's designed to make the air cleaner, how much cleaner and with what benefits? So if you make the air, let's say, 10% cleaner along some dimension, does that mean fewer people get sick? Does that mean fewer people get die? Or does it just mean there's a little more visibility, let's say, at six in the morning. The first would be much more important than the second, though visibility matters too. We also want to know what are the costs. If you impose burdens, let's say, on uh, manufacturers or polluters of various kinds, uh, are the costs uh, modest or are they really large? And what are the consequences of the costs? Do the costs mean that consumers will pay more for goods? That's not great. Does it mean that workers are going to be paid less in wages? That's not good at all. And if we get a concrete sense of what the costs and benefits are, I think we can make terrific progress toward figuring out what's good to do and what's less good to do. And if we don't know what the costs and benefits are, that is, we don't have the information that would enable us to identify them, that's also good to know because then we know we're making a judgment in the face of uncertainty, and we know what we should try to learn and what we should try to monitor, and we might have some humility. We might not be doing the right thing. So in the U.S. government, where I was privileged to work uh, full-time for a number of years and to have a kind of more partial advisory role after, uh, if the question involved what to do about, let's say, greenhouse gas emissions, or what to do about uh, a risk of people getting sick from unsafe food, to ask concretely, what are the benefits that are produced by some effort to address the problem? And what are the costs, often unintended, but possibly severe, of the solution? What are the, what's the solution gonna do that's gonna make life worse for people is a, a kind of a, a mature thing to do. And it's so much better than asking the interest groups by getting a consensus, uh, which could be just a compromise, and not do anything good for anybody. And it's, it's much better, I think, than exclusively asking what our values are. Because expressing our values uh, might make us feel good, but not help anybody. 
Right. So this is fascinating how you actually, because I was thinking as you as you talked about these these theoretical assumptions and insights that seem very persuasive, but then you didn't just stay in the ivory tower and, and nurture those ideas. You actually went out and into the you and cry of politics. And uh, how was that? Was that a totally different world, or <laughs> could yes, you, was it, it easy is. to implement those ideas? Would everyone, everyone listen to them? And, and well, I think there there are a couple of things I'd say. One is that. As an academic, um, often what's best is to come up with an idea. And if it's original and interesting, that's good. If people should actually implement it, that's not what people think about. In, in academic life, uh, it's more originality and um, you know, creativity and, and maybe is there a good defense of it. Not just maybe. Yes, is there a good defense of it? In in government, originality is not necessarily important or creativity. It's is it actually going to help people? Is it a good idea? And so I, I learned in government very early on actually that the the coin of the realm is something that'll help solve a problem, not something that would, you know, people would say, Oh, I didn't know that. That's not really important. What matters is does it help solve a problem. So that is a major, major difference. Also to learn the um, importance of uh, working in a government process where a lot of people count. And they may sound a little dull, but it's actually um, both immensely frustrating and inspiring. Uh, that to get something important through a government, a lot of people have to agree with that. And the fact that a lot of people agree with it may, means there's a lot of veto points. Um, but it also means that you get a lot of smart and uh, well-meaning people uh, thinking hard about it. And that can be a great correction against error. So I'd say it, it, working in government doesn't have the, uh, you know, the same kind of excitement as you can get if you're working on an idea and you're trying to get it right. It's kind of uh, a little uh, embarrassing to say that's exciting, but some academics, and I confess I'm one, find that exciting. But in government, it's, I found it immensely gratifying. So you, you'd think in, on a day, I got to participate in something that's going to reduce the number of deaths from air pollution in my country by a, a significant number. I was blessed to participate in that. Or I got to work on something that's going to reduce the incidence of prison rape in the United States. We had a rule that's reducing the incidence of prison rape. And that's, you know, those are words, but we're talking about people's lives. One of the early things I worked on was the United States had a ban on entry into our country for people who are HIV positive, and that's that's terrible. It prevents people who can contribute to uh, a nation. They can't come in even. And it also is cruel because people who are HIV positive, they may have you know, parents or siblings or children or spouses or partners who are there and they, they can't come into the country and uh, um, before I got to work on that rule actually 15 years before I had been in Germany and there was someone who came up to me at a conference with with great feeling and said 
is it true that in your country someone who's HIV positive can't come in? He said, that's right near the Statue of Liberty. Is, is that possible that people can't come in? And I can see his face as if it were, you know, five minutes ago where there was uh, bewilderment as well as, um, what is it, something softer than rage, but something like bewilderment and rage, thinking it's a country that's a free country, people can't come in. And, uh, and we got rid of that and made it so that people can come in. And I got to work on that. And speaking of cost-benefit analysis, because I care about cost-benefit analysis, we did a very careful cost-benefit analysis of what are the costs, which could include an increase in the number of people who are HIV positive. What are the benefits? We had a lot of people who can do productive work who are going to come in. But that's not what the whole thing is about. It has humanitarian and uh, equitable goals uh, that can't be reduced to cost-benefit analysis. And anyone who loves cost-benefit analysis, as I do, has to recognize it's not everything. And so our, our uh, action had a detailed discussion of the uh, non-quantitative humanitarian benefits. And that's something the President of the United States, President Obama, is very committed to. I talked to him about that specifically. And to, to work on that, you know, if that's the only thing you do for a year, it's a good year. Not only because, not mostly because the explanation is uh, real and open to everyone, but also because there are countless people who are able to come into our country now, who otherwise would have been forbidden. Wonderful. What technical means to a, a very great end. Um, uh, these that you're talking about now is, is regulations and rules, but uh, one thing that you're, you're uh, possibly even more famous for, at least in, in this country, is, is your book Nudge, which is a different way of, of nudging people to do the right thing, a book that you co-authored with uh, Richard Thaler, um, the Nobel Prize winning behavioral economist. So could you just tell us a little bit about the reasoning behind nudging and what nudges are that regulations are not? Okay, so I'll tell you the origin, shall I, of yes, the term. Please. So, uh, so there's this work on how human beings actually act, that they often think today's important, next year, who cares? Or they might think uh, other people run into problems, but I'm different. Everything's going to be fine for me. Or they might think uh, I'll change uh, my situation later. Like St. Augustine said, uh, a prayer famous prayer, God give me chastity, but not today. <laughs> and uh, this is um, uh, what people are like. And then the question is, given the fact that people sometimes uh, run into serious problems in their lives uh, because of their, uh, uh, let's say, focus on today and not tomorrow, and their focus on uh, how things are going to be just fine for them, uh, what can be done? And so we, Thaler and I wrote an article in which we talked, we're not in favor of paternalism, but we're anti-anti-paternalism. Right. And that's not the most happy phrase. <laughs> and as we kept thinking about it, we kept thinking, well, there are things you can do that preserve freedom of choice, but also have a paternalistic feature. Uh, so think of a GPS device, which you can ignore, uh, which helps you to get to your preferred destination, and which... Uh, gives you help. It's a nudge. A GPS device is completely a nudge or a reminder or a disclosure of information, let's say, about 
uh, what your food has in it or disclosure of information about your credit card plan. And these things are all nudges. They are uh, preserving your freedom of choice, uh, but nudging you to go in a certain direction. And so we came up with a term called libertarian paternalism and published an academic article with the title, Libertarian Paternalism is Not an Oxymoron. And amazingly, that's probably the worst title in the history of academia. It didn't make the headlines. <laughs> it did no. not make the headlines. But amazingly, we put it on the, the internet and people kept downloading it. And libertarian paternalism is not an oxymoron became, uh, against all odds, uh, people were interested in it. And, and that made us think we probably should do a book about tools that governments can use that don't involve mandates or bans, but that are like a GPS device. And the idea here is that freedom often needs to be preserved, but the word is too abstract. We need, uh, we need life, life needs to be easier to navigate, and a nudge can help uh, people navigate life. And what we found as we started on the book is that there are areas of law and policy problems that might involve um, cigarette smoking, it might involve distracted driving, it might involve um, anything that makes people's lives more vulnerable than they would otherwise be, where a part of the solution might be a nudge, or the best solution might be a nudge, period. And that was really a, 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 a series of discoveries we had in writing the book. And what I've learned since is that we uh, just got at the very tiny tip of an iceberg. And so in the last 10 years, uh, lots of people, including the authors, have just learned much more about uh, where these uh, freedom-preserving approaches can be helpful. Uh, think of social media, Facebook. Facebook is nudging you all the time, and there are various ways it can nudge you. It can nudge you to learn things that aren't true. It can nudge you to learn uh, political opinions that are extreme. It can nudge you to do things that can protect your health. It can nudge you to focus on uh, what your friend's children's cutest pictures yesterday are. And so companies are nudging all the time. And the question is, what nudges are in the public interest? You followed up uh, with, a, with a book a couple of a number of years later in 2015 called Choosing Not to Choose. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the reasoning behind that and how it, it ties on to, to what you learned from the nudge? Yes. Thank you. So the, so the basic idea is that uh, people have limited attention. So we want to focus on a subset of the things that we could focus on. Otherwise, we'd lose our minds or wouldn't be able to set priorities. And there are some areas where uh, the best choice is not to choose. So if you go to a restaurant, you might think, you know, especially if it's in a foreign country, you might think, waiter, you decide. Or what do you think's best on the menu? Or if you're in a taxi going to the airport and the taxi driver asks you, what route would you like me to take? Many people don't welcome that question. <laughs> so you're the taxi driver, you take the fastest route. And I think in those homely examples where all the time we choose not to choose, we can learn about the uh, 
constructive uses, not of bans and prohibitions, but of uh, uh, things that make life simpler for us by making it unnecessary for us to choose if we choose not to choose. And I'll give you some mundane examples. Your uh, cell phone has a bunch of default settings on it, which you can alter if you want, but the company didn't force you to make choices in the first instance. That um, your relationship with your employer probably has in it various uh, terms which you didn't choose. Your employer probably chose them. Um, if you don't like them, it is to be hoped that you have an opportunity to change them. But so long as things are going well, and, it, and surely they aren't always, but as long as things are going well, the default uh, relationships with your employer about vacation times or working hours and so forth, they are in your mutual interest. And so all over the place, I think we uh, either delegate to someone, maybe our spouse, maybe uh, an advisor of various kinds, maybe a doctor, the, the, the choice and choosing not to choose is a way that we exercise our freedom. I'll say just a little bit about the medical setting where uh, there's a lot of work in medical ethics and some of it is legally uh, uh, affected by law, uh, where the idea is that patient autonomy is the, uh, is the big uh, organizing principle and we want patients to choose everything. and. It, that's not a terrible idea because it's patients' bodies and lives who are at stake, but we have to be careful with it. I, with a doctor, I did a recent study, very recent, after the book you mentioned, that finds that when patients are in doctor's offices, they t if they take a cognitive test, they perform worse on the cognitive test than any group of people has ever performed in the history of this test. Patients in a doctor's office, they are just not able to focus. They are either under conditions of their attention is very much on their appointment or they're stressed. We don't know which. They do terribly on the test. But if people are cognitively kind of in the worst condition imaginable and then the doctor gives them some uh, questions or asks them what they want their treatment to be or which test they want, they're in an awful position to good uh, give good answers. Ask them the next day when they're not in the office. And uh, that's if you value patient autonomy. But you might also think if you're a doctor, you know, maybe what the patient wants is for me to make the choice subject to the patient's ultimate override. And that seems to me a very good idea that for patients to be advised strongly by doctors, so long as patients ultimately have the final say, that's uh, a service to the patient. So libertarian paternalism, it's, it's a way of, of thinking about uh, leaving as much autonomy to people as you can and have as, as little interference from the state as possible, uh, at least in a coercive way. So uh, I was thinking about this in relation to another field in which the state decides questions for you um, in some ways. And that's, that's a different branch, not the political, but the judicial branch. Because it seems that you have not a similar approach, but approach that can be somehow linked to that uh, when you talk about judicial minimal minimalism. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, what that is and, yes. and why you think it's a good idea? Yes. So the idea is that, uh, let's talk broadly about minimalism. 
that when human beings have a hard question, they might have one of two strategies. They might think, let's resolve the problem of what to, what to do today and not resolve the problem about what to do for the rest of the decade. So you might want to decide narrowly rather than broadly. So if you think of a couple deciding how to spend their vacation this year, they might have very different views about how to va do vacation. But they might decide, well, uh, let's go to the favor our favorite beach spot this year, even though, let's say, one person likes culture and another person likes beaches. Let's, we agree, let's go to the beach this year. But we're never going to resolve everything. That's narrow. The other thing you could do is let's not discuss some deep theoretical question about uh, uh, life, but let's decide some shallow question about uh, this problem, where this problem might be about how to deal with a child who's having problems in school. Let's not think about you know anything that involves freedom or equality. Let's think, what do we do about this problem in a way that's shallow? And the idea of narrow and shallow, you can completely see in courts, where in your field, constitutional law, a judge might think, well, for freedom of speech, I'm not going to decide whether the free speech principle is about autonomy or utility or about um, you know, Aristotle, I'm going to decide uh, how to handle this particular question in a way that can command agreement from all these different theoretical positions. And that often happens in politics, by the way, where you go shallow and not deep. And uh, a thought is that while in a relationship you would never, I think, think, well, you might think this, but not for all time. You might think this for one day, but not for marriage. I want a shallow person. <laughs> you wouldn't think that. Uh, in law, you might think uh, shallowness is, is, is good because it's humble and it's also respectful. It's humble about the judge's own capacity to resolve the big theoretical disputes. It's also respectful because it says, um, you know, people disagree on the deep issues and we're going to let them have their views and not tell them they're wrong. And so that idea of uh, a shallow ruling has, I think, deep democratic foundations. A narrow ruling has similar virtues, where we might think, this bit of speech is protected. Whether other bits of speech that are like it is protected, we're not going to say. We don't know. And we're going to focus on, on this, this case. So there's a judge, our Chief Justice Roberts, who said in his confirmation hearings, where it is not necessary to decide an issue in order to resolve a case, it is necessary not to resolve an issue to decide a case. And that's you know, a lovely phrase. Uh, you can see it as animated by a commitment to mutual respect and um, a democratic ideal of, of judicial hum humility. Now, I like minimalism, but uh, I have a kind of uh, stormy love affair with min minimalism. And the reason minimalism and I don't always get along is that there are areas where you can't get away with shallowness or narrowness. There are areas where the issue is just too contentious between theoretical positions to command agreement from all sides. 
And there are issues where, you know, people kind of need to know what the law is. So if you just decide it for today, you'll um, leave too much uncertainty out there, which may push you in the direction of depth and width. There are also areas where uh, you know enough and the society's commitments are sufficiently clear that it's not embarrassing to go wide and go deep. It's kind of glorious. And, uh, and in such cases where the judges should be, you know, they should think a lot before doing it. But there are such cases where uh, a glorious ruling uh, deserves celebration. Polarization is, is something that you have been um, looking into in a number of your, your writings. Uh, you've, you've sort of coined it in the way that like-minded types are they're tending to stick together and, and, and listen mostly to each other and, and form echo chambers, and, and then you get group dynamics at play, and that uh, those kinds of tendencies are, are getting even worse with the influence of the Internet, and particularly now the later years with the social media. Uh, could you talk a little bit about sort of how you got into thinking about polarization and group group dynamics, yes. and, and then from then on how you uh, applied it to to relevant uh, contemporary phenomena? Yes, so I did some work on punishment decisions and outrage a long time ago, and originally we thought that if you have a group of people, the best predictor of where they will end up after they talk is what's the middle position. So we did some work saying that if people are upset about corporate misconduct and you want to figure out what punishment they'll seek, I'll look at the middle judgment. And we did some papers on that. I did with some colleagues and people said, how do you know it's a middle judgment? And we thought that stands to reason. Uh, but then we tested it empirically with a huge number of groups. And we found that the group always basically ends up more punitive than the individual median if people begin upset with the misconduct. So if people think something, somebody's done something wrong, a group is going to be more punitive than the middle individual. And that I found electrifying because I thought this isn't just about punishment judgments. It might be about everything. And with empirical work that I was involved in and empirical work that others had done, in pretty obscure areas, it turned out that there's a regularity, which is that groups typically end up in a more extreme position in line with their tendency before they started to talk. So if you have a bunch of people who think that President Trump is really great, uh, after they talk with each other, they think President Trump is really, really, really great. Uh, if you have a group of people who think that climate change is a serious problem, after they talk to each other, they may end up thinking the world's going to burn up uh, within a decade. And this is predictable. It just happens, not all the time, but regularly. And that seemed to me uh, fundamental in the sense that it tells us something about how terrorism gets going, that uh, people um, get all stirred up in ways that can lead to something horrific. It tells us about how something about polarization. If people are talking to like-minded people, they won't just uh, be stiffened, let's say, in their view. They'll end up being split apart like that. Uh, and it tells us about how people uh, learn from each other. And that uh, thought bears on Brexit. It bears on things that are happening in uh, countries that are going in authoritarian directions. 
it bears on what social media are, 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 are doing to people. And it was that original work on punishment judgments uh, that has kind of gotten me all focused on this and um, you know, working on it very much even as we speak. This morning I was writing about this. Wow. Mm. Um, you have this way of combining what are normative assumptions with empirical testing in a way that many others do not. And uh, I'm wondering sometimes what the implications of that will be, because one of your, your, your heroes, as you've said, uh, one of the great thinkers, John Stuart Mill, uh, who's also sort of an empiricist, but who also has uh, normative assumptions about uh, the search for truth and, and why we protect free speech and liberty in the first place. Could you tell us a little bit yeah. about that? I'm smiling because Mill is, as you say, you know, uh, empirical as well as a normative uh, thinker and also one of the all-time greats. But On Liberty, which is, if you had to pick one work in political philosophy, certainly that bears on law in the history of the world, that would be a strong candidate. But it's full of empirical assumptions that might not be true, yes. some of which just aren't true. So uh, the idea that uh, more speech rather than enforced silence will correct falsehoods, uh, that's demonstrably false in, in some contexts. Now, under some assumptions, it, it, it'll work, but we know that when people have a very strong commitment to some factual propositions, if it's corrected, their, their false belief, let's say, by a seemingly reliable source, sometimes they will not only cease, not cease thinking the falsehood, they'll believe the falsehood more strongly. And we actually know something about why that is. One is people think uh, if, if, they're, if they're denying it, it must be true. That's further proof. I must have upset Touched them. Touched something, yes. <laughs> yeah. Or, or they just get upset. And once you get upset, you uh, dig in to your belief. So um, the idea that more speech is, is, as a factual matter, a remedy for falsehood, sometimes, not always. I want to tie on to the theme of the Holberg Symposium, which reads, can democracies arrive at truth, and if so, through which mechanisms? This is something that we have touched a bit upon and that you're going to talk more about uh, uh, in, in the symposium, but I was wondering a bit about the premise of democracy. Um, you've touched upon this in, in your book, Can It Happen Here, that you edited last year, and there's also a recent book by um, a, a scholar called uh, Yasha Munk called uh, The People Versus Democracy, uh, which looks into how Western liberal democracies are sort of tending to skew democratic means and, and democracy and in general in favor of, of uh, authoritarian uh, or populist rule. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, as, as you speak, uh, that book I, I don't know yet, but uh, I want to you know, test the hypothesis. And uh, in Norway and Canada and Sweden and Denmark, these are countries I've visited relatively recently, uh, it doesn't look like we're going authoritarian at all. So um, Turkey, things aren't going so great. Um, uh, China is not a flourishing democracy, but it hasn't been. Uh, so I'd wonder, uh, do we have 
a trend that is statistically worthy in favor of authoritarian movement. So um, uh, I, I, I'm not sure the hypothesis is true. Um, it is true that some nations that have had a significant movement toward democracy are showing uh, interest in less authoritarian, less democratic and more authoritarian things. And that is, uh, has complex causal roots and it may not be the same for every nation. And what I'm wondering at this point is whether uh, it's a product of something like cascade effects and social interactions rather than about anything deep about uh, where the world is going. Having said that, there's no question that uh, uh, 2018 is not the best year democracy's ever had, and that some nations have shown um, uh, movement in, in directions that are, that are not good. Um, in terms of why this is, the appeal of authoritarianism to some is based on something in the human soul. And, and to others, it's based on, on the thought that we need somebody who at least can make progress in some direction that's good. And uh, both of those, that is the thing in the human soul and the kind of cry for leadership um, are um, you know, gonna, always gonna be with us, um, but they are dangerous. Your thought about this in, in the United States, uh, following the, the, the uh, volume that you edited, which had uh, con different contributors who had, who had different views on, on this. Yes, so uh, as, as the editor of the volume, that is yours truly, was kind enough to permit yours truly to publish an article in the collection. And my own chapter is sanguine. It engages the question, can a democracy that has you know, a well-functioning system of checks and balances ultimately fall to an authoritarian system? And uh, uh, that chapter, my chapter, says it cannot happen in the United States. That some things that are a little reminiscent of it can happen. Terrible things like the internment of Japanese Americans in World War II, uh, that happened. Suppression of free speech as, hap as happened in wartime, that's authoritarian, but it's not authoritarianism. That can happen. But uh, I don't think that is a risk for the United States. Um, that other democracies that have fallen have had less robust institutions and cultures that are, uh, for historical reasons, more um, open let's say, to authoritarian leaders. But the, the book, which has a diverse array of contributors, um, is less uh, uh, optimistic than the editor is. So many of the authors think, and you know, we can't rule out the possibility that uh, democracy is more vulnerable in the United States than, uh, than the editor thinks. You go back in your chapter there, and, and also in, a, in another book that came out last year, to the historical roots of, of uh, these institutions and, and how the founders thought about them. And the other book that I'm thinking about this is uh, your book on impeachment. And um, impeachment, obviously, is, is even more relevant in a, in a system like yours, which is not a parliamentarian system. Um, can you tell us a little about, bit about uh, 
what what the impeachment clause says and and why you go back and and what uh, relevant conclusions you draw from your historical insights to the contemporary questions and also perhaps if you could reflect a little bit upon uh, the relevance of history and historical insights for science in general law in particular i guess okay so maybe i'll start by saying that the impeachment book it's really about democracy and the American Revolution. And the origin of the book is in the fact that when I moved from Washington and New York to Massachusetts, I moved with my family into a house that was one of the places, one of the very few places where the British came on April 19, 1775 to remove munitions and that visit, which involved violence, was the day that the American Revolution started, April 19th, 1775. And my house was actually holding munitions. It was built in 1763. And so the house where I sleep every night, it actually was a focal point for the birth of self-government in the United States. Um, and living in that house inspired me to try to understand what the American Revolution was about. And what I learned, to my great surprise, was that the American Revolution was a, uh, a revolution not about British rule only, but also about uh, human equality and equal dignity, where the idea that some people were below others uh, and would look up to others because they were gentlemen or something, was turned on its head. Not that people wouldn't be respectful, they would, but, but respect is something that you're owed by virtue of your humanity, not that you're owed by virtue of the fact that your parents are rich. And that went like fire through the American colonies in the 18th century. And the culmination really was in the American Revolution. So I learned that, I had no idea. Who knew the, the radical nature of the revolution? Now on impeachment, what I learned was that the first shots of the American Revolution were impeachment proceedings, where an idea that had basically died in, the, in England was alive in the United States, which didn't exist yet, was alive in the American colonies, where the uh, colonists were impeaching British officials for abuse of power. And the abuse of power consisted of a denial of the fundamental right to democratic self-rule. And those were impeachment proceedings. Before impeachment became a constitutional idea, those Americans were impeaching the British. And that's very brave stuff to do. If you read the American uh, Declaration of Independence, and it's worth reading from whatever country you're from, it's like articles of impeachment. And that's how the document reads. And that's not an accident. They knew about impeachment proceedings. Then when the Constitution was written, impeachment was adopted for uh, to allow uh, basically treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Those are the grounds. Treason, bribery, other high crimes and misdemeanors to a basis for getting rid of the president. And the idea behind other high crimes and misdemeanors is abuse of power. 
and they were thinking very specifically of the kinds of acts that had prompted the revolution in the first place, which need not be technical crimes, but abuse of power. And Alexander Hamilton was very clear about this, so were many others. And that, those are the grounds for impeachment. And what uh, is noteworthy here, I think, is you cannot understand the American Constitution or the American culture without understanding the impeachment clause because it is basically part and parcel of, of the notion of uh, human equality. So Bob Dylan, Nobel Prize winner and my favorite uh, uh, popular singer, I guess we call him that, uh, sang, uh, sometimes even the president of the United States has to stand naked. And uh, that's really hearkening back to April 19, 1775, where American farmers in self-defense uh, shot British soldiers who had shot first. And those that shot, basically the shot heard around the world, was saying, you know, we get to govern ourselves. Wow. So it's uh, it, it, one of my favorite words in, in English is, uh, seems to be driving you towards this book as well. And it's a, it's a word that's been a concept in much of your writing. It's serendipity. Could you uh, talk a little bit about what why serendipity has been important to you uh, in, in other ways than, than bringing you towards uh, writing about impeachment? Well, um, we've talked a little bit about democracy and social media. So... Uh, that might be a good place to start. That if you look at um, uh, a well-functioning newspaper or city uh, in Bergen or Oslo, you know, as a visitor, uh, every you know 200 feet, you'll see something that will surprise you, and from which you'll learn something. It might be beautiful. It might be cultural. It might be a person. It might be um, a product, and you never would have chosen that necessarily if you were putting together a feed, but you'll see it, and it will have an impact on you. Um, that's why being in a city that's not one's own, it's often as if your, uh, your mind's uh, on high alert because everything is new. And if you live in Oslo or Bergen, then you know, it's, it's like furniture. It's what you live with. But if you're a visitor from you know, Germany or Canada or the United States, there's endless fascination in every 200 feet. And it, the media environment can be similar. It can provide you basically furniture, or it can provide you serendipitous encounters with ideas and people. It can give you points of view that you never would have chosen. It can tell you about something that happened, let's say, in Italy or South Africa or some in the Silicon Valley that will uh, uh, change your day and maybe even change your life. So if you, you know, talk to people about what got them where they are today in terms of their spouse or their job or their interests or their hobby, it will often be some little thing that turned everything around that is, uh, they didn't choose it, it just happened to happen. So we talked about you know, my interest in law. I happened to take a college course which had political philosophy and law in it. If, it hadn't taken, if I hadn't taken that course, 
uh, you know, maybe I'd be a professional football player now. <laughs> now. Uh, and th these, these things are all around us. And it is a little um, disconcerting to think that so many things are a product of happenstance. But I think it also tells us something about uh, freedom and surprise and about culture where, you know, things can change on a dime. And that's a, uh, that is the, um, what's the right word? Adventure's a little too sanctimonious. There might be a word in Norwegian that's a non-sanctimonious adventure, but that's, uh, uh, that's what it is. And if we have an openness to serendipity in anything, when you go in a bookstore, it's different from going online where they might tell you the books you like. If you go in a bookstore, you'll see something about something, and it might uh, redirect your attention in a way that will alter you know, how you do what you're now doing, or maybe turn you in, uh, in toward doing something you know, very, very different. Yes, it's been great talking to you. I just uh, want to round off this conversation by asking you where you're going now in terms of, of, uh, of writing that you're uh, into these days. Well, uh, I'm uh, thinking a lot about the topic of freedom consistent with some of our current discussion. And I have a small book brewing on freedom, which will be connected with some of our topics today. Uh, but... Uh, a little more philosophical, actually, about the preconditions for freedom. Uh, I have something to say about the relationship between freedom and well-being, uh, on which we are learning a great deal, and something to say about uh, the complex relationship between freedom and self-control, where the simple and very important and true thing to say is that sometimes freedom requires self-control, but it's more fun to think that that's too simple and that uh, a free life includes giving into temptation sometimes. And so the book is going to grapple with that. I also have a, a book coming on the topic of conformity. And the current title is The Curse of Conformity, which is um, a little too inflammatory, I think. Uh, but but, but we're, I think we're going to stick with it, The Curse of Conformity. You don't seem to suffer from that uh, that curse. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank Kate you. Sunstein. Great, great pleasure. Thank you.